to be honest, I wish I'd done what I'm doing now a bit earlier. So there's always that fear, isn't there, of leaving something that's solid and secure and pays a nice lump of money into your bank account every month and doing your own thing. And often when you do do your own thing, you think, God, why didn't I do this earlier? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am talking with and learning from Guy Rigby. Guy is a returning guest to The Melting Pot. Last time he was on, he was still a partner at Smith & Williamson, which is or was the entrepreneur's advisor, if you like. Guy had was responsible for founding their entrepreneur's practice and had seen over 600 startups be advised by Smith and Williamson. Uh, but last time he was on, we were talking about his book, From Vision to Exit, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Building and Selling a Business, talking through his experience of what made great companies, what helped them what helped them exit for high multiples. But today we are not talking to him about that. We are talking to him about the fact that he is a world record holder. He holds the world record for the oldest fastest man to row any ocean that, that anybody cares about so last year they rowed he and his partner david rowed the atlantic and we're going to talk to him about that like why did it did did he enjoy it if he did what bits did he enjoy what was awful what was terrifying what was his preparation what his preparation look like how fit was he does he have to be that fit I just, I just wanted to pick his brains because I, I remember when he told me, Dom, I'm go I've decided I'm going to row the Atlantic. I just thought he was completely bonkers. And then, you know, chatted to him and followed his training antics on Strava and then followed him as he crossed the Atlantic and then chatted to him once he'd got there. And work had got in the way, him and me, to get him on as a guest to find out, tell his story, if you like. So that's what we do today. We find out why a man in his late 60s would want to row the Atlantic and how it went. So absolutely fab chatting to Guy about this. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm Guy Rigby and uh, I'm here to talk to Dominic about all sorts of things, including rowing, finance, startups, growth companies, you name it. And I'm sure we're going to have a fun chat. Fantastic. Where should we start? Should we start with, should we start with rowing? We could do. Because the last time you were on, so you, you're in that rare group of returning guests, and you were, was it pre-COVID you were planning to do that? Did COVID stop you doing it? 
I had the idea pre-COVID. We actually planned it probably pretty much throughout COVID, and we were still in the, you know, in the heart of COVID actually when when we left, which was last December, when we set off from La Gomera on December the twelfth, and yeah. But we, we managed to avoid catching it somehow. My wife got it a week before we before we set off. And I, I remember you you were you were living separately, weren't you, in the same house, so that you didn't get it. But I didn't get it, and uh, so we and that would have that would have been a killer if that had happened because we would have we we would have not been able to go, and uh, all the work involved was incredible. But we did it. Um, we, we did the crossing in 53 days, three hours and 42 minutes. The 42 minutes are obviously very important. <laughs> and uh, we got there successfully. We, we, we remained as friends and stuck to our mission statement. And we raised uh, just over three quarters of a million for the charity. So quite, quite an amazing uh, achievement, really. And set a world record as well, didn't you? We did set a world record for the oldest pair ever to row any ocean. Yeah. Uh-huh. To row any ocean? Yeah. Okay, that's... Uh, yeah, that's... So the oceans that they count are the Atlantic, the Indian, and the Pacific. Okay. Um, so those are, those are, that's what you call it, not like rowing across the channel. That's, that's yeah. not the ocean. <laughs> and are you, uh, you going to do it again? No, but... Uh, <laughs> it was so um, much fun, not, I won't do that again. Not, not at the moment, not in my current situation. I never say never. Um, but we, because we raised so much money for the charity, and unfortunately I didn't have this idea before I sold our boat, I've agreed to take on a five-year program for them, putting two people in the boat every year from 2023 onwards. So uh, I think you'll subscribe for 2024, is that right? <laughs> uh, so you keep telling me. We're, we're, we're building a new boat at the moment, and we take delivery next February. And uh, I've got the two guys for the 2023 challenge. And uh, I who are, the, who are these mentalists for 2023? Well, a couple of guys. One guy I've known for a very long time. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether they want me to talk about them very much. Okay, uh, right. In case in case they change their minds. The guys, they're probably in their early 50s. Uh, one runs a family office. The other guy is quite a well-known artist, as in creative, and. Uh, I saw them yesterday uh, for the first time physically. We've had lots of Zoom calls and all that sort of stuff. And I said, well, I, I'd be quite interested in, you know, what you think you're going to do on the funding side. And he said, well, put it this way. He said, we're going to beat you. <laughs> <laughs> so if that happens in year one of our five-year program, the charity is going to be very delighted. And what what work does the charity do? What what will it put your funds – What so the charity uh, finds funds and supports social entrepreneurs, typically in challenged communities. So, you know, leveling up, really. Um, and over 50 percent of the businesses it funds are uh, minority ethnic businesses, female businesses, disabled run businesses. So it's a really underfunded area of the kind of startup and growth company market that they're working at. Now, I've worked with entrepreneurs, as you know, for many years, and it just rang, rang a bell with me. You know, I just thought this is a great thing to do. And yeah, so I think probably our funds are going to have supported, I don't know, somewhere 50 entrepreneurs or something, the funds we raised. Are the businesses it supports charity cases or are the, do they turn into thriving enterprises? And does it then, does it then make a return or does it gift money to these businesses? Yeah, the idea is that they have a social impact. 
So they either employ people in deprived areas or uh, or they do something that's good for the community or they work with disabled people or whatever. Um, I mean, but, but actually, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good question because, you know, every entrepreneurial business, in my opinion, is a social enterprise because it employs people. It, uh, you know, the people that they employ pay taxes. So we're all doing something social unless we're actually destroying the planet as part of what we do. Um, so, so you can you can bring a quite a wide definition to it, but their, their focus is really on helping people who otherwise wouldn't be able to start a business, so they can't get their money from the bank of mum and dad or, or whatever it may be. Okay, and and then but they're looking to support businesses to get off the ground that then become self-sustaining. Correct, and they've now got something called a growth impact fund, which is something that we've helped to seed which is to, to put in second stage investment into the ones that they support, the ones that they're going to be successful. It's a really nice charity. It's very unknown. Part of the reason we wanted to do it was to help it get a bit better known. And, you know, with, with investment returns as they've been recently, you know, they can use the money. So Yeah. And so how much, sorry, how much did you raise again? 753,000. Fabulous. And so, did you feel prouder about raising the money or having the world record for the oldest chaps to row any ocean? <laughs> I mean, the whole, as you can imagine, the whole thing was amazing. I mean, you know, there were, there were some challenging moments and some moments when you thought, what the have I done and why have I done it? <laughs> uh, but, um, but arriving in Antigua after the 53 days, 3 hours and 42 minutes, and getting there safely, being friends with my rowing partner, raising 750,000 quid, taking a world record. You can imagine it was a fun, fun arrival. So uh, how old are you? 69. You're 60. You did it when you were 68. I did, yeah. Yeah. And so how, how fit would you, on a scale of one, because I'm, you know, I'm sure people are listening to this going, oh my God. But how fit, on a scale of one to 10, how fit were you bef- when you decided you would do it, do you reckon? Probably five, five out of ten, I should think. Okay, and then, then how fit did you get before? You, like, I guess you're thinking, I'll get to ten. Did you get to ten, or did you get to sort of like six and a half? I think I got probably to about seven and a half or eight to ten eight out of ten. But uh, but you know, it's not like sitting on a rowing machine in a gym, you know, at, at twenty five strokes to the minute, trying to break, you know, two minutes per five hundred meters. This is a long game. Uh, you know, you're rowing two hours on, two hours off every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We never stop rowing. The only time we stop, we stop twice for about an hour to clean the bottom of the boat and get all the bits off the bottom. But other than that, you just never, the boat is always moving. Oh, you know what? I hadn't thought about that at all. So there's only one set of oars. There's three sets of oars. Two of them don't get used. Uh, apart from, uh, yeah. You row one up. You row one up, and uh, we rowed the last nine or ten hours together, coming into Antigua because we hit some nasty currents. So we rowed together. That was the best. It was calm, and it was the most beautiful arrival. So we we enjoyed that row more than anything. But actually, you, you can't row. You know, if you're doing your twelve hours a day in two hour slots, it's difficult then to do any more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and so. So you're doing you're rowing for two hours and then you're like Ellen McCarthy, you're trying to sleep? Yeah. So you well, in the daytime, 
you'd be more interested in eating, uh, washing your clothes, washing yourself, cleaning the boat, etc. But the moment we really used to look forward to the nights uh, because, you know, that meant that when it was dark, all you'd do is come off the oars, go in the cabin and go to sleep. And you'd eat while you were rowing. So at night, you didn't bother with any hot food or anything. You just had your snack packs, which were delicious things like jelly babies and fruit and nut chocolate. And the moment you'd finished your two-hour slot in the night, and the nights were 12 hours long, so it was dark for 12 hours. We really loved our nights because you'd go out like a bloody light and um, sleep for an hour and a half. And then, you know, you sort of take your wet gear off, you know, get into your sleeping bag, go to bed, you know, set your alarm. The one thing I struggled with was sleep deprivation, and I, I was very disoriented some of the time. It went two o'clock in the morning when it was time for me to get back on the oars. I'd wake up thinking, where the hell am I? Uh, what is going on? Uh, I, I have no idea, and I'd open the door, and I'd actually be surprised to see my rowing partner sitting on the seat rowing the boat. Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it, quite weird. It's almost hallucinatory. But other than that, you know, um, it was an amazing, amazing thing. And you, know? you had a hell of a tan by the time you got to Antigua, didn't you? In terms of? You were very weathered by the time you got there. Yeah, well, it's not surprising. I mean, I left, yeah, I mean, you're outside, you know, practically all the time, certainly when, when, the, when it's light and when the sun's shining, and the sun shines a lot out there. And we did wear hats occasionally and almost always wore a T-shirt. But it, it kind of seeps through. You know, it's a deep stain that you get. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, but I lost 10 kilograms. So I went down from 12 and a half stone to 10 and a half stone on the road. Wow. How long did it take you to put it back on? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm now 12 and a half stone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, took, it didn't take very long. Basically, we've been partying for six months now. So, <laughs> and didn't you say to me that you it was hard to get back on dry land when you got to Antigua? You were you sort of wobbly legged for a little while. Very, I mean, incredibly, couldn't believe it. Really, I mean, not you know, when you go on a boat, as I'm sure most people have, you come off and you do feel a bit, oh, a bit floaty. But normally, you know, you go and have a pint of Guinness at the pub, and by the time you leave the pub, you're absolutely fine. Well, mine lasted a month. And for the first week, I was staggering from one object that I could grab hold of to another, to be honest. And the other thing that's really interesting is that, uh, and this is where the girls do well on the, um, on the row, uh, is you lose your calf muscles. So I made the mistake of putting on a pair of flat moccasins when I got off the boat and walked around Antigua for a day, or rather staggered. And then on the third morning, I basically couldn't stand up because my calf muscles were so searingly painful. Uh, and that, that took about a week to uh, to rectify itself. So yeah, month, and and the other thing is um, hands. Uh, so my my hands, I've still got tendonitis in my hands. So that's six months on. They'll probably they'll probably get fixed. Uh, they'll probably fix themselves in the next six months. Which is sort of the equi the equivalent of having. Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's just the grip, isn't it? But uh, um, I went to see my physio. I said, oh, I don't know, my hands aren't too good. I don't know why that is. And he said, uh, he said, don't be so bloody stupid. You don't me He said, what did you expect? But most people who are younger get over it a bit quicker. Okay. To get to your from sort of five to eight and a half out, out of ten, how, 
how much training did you have to do? I'm just trying to give people a sense of, you know, what's the sort of opening level of fitness that they might need so that they can ring you and volunteer for 2024. Yeah, exactly. It's really interesting that a lot of people, I mean, I, I, my view is that if you are, you know, averagely fit, uh, especially if you're a bit younger than me, you would really have no problem. And, and as one of the guys said to me um, in Lagomeri, you know, I'm going to train on the way. And, uh, you know, there is an element of that. I thought I'd work a bit harder. We, we were given some tips by a very um, good uh, um, a rowing fitness trainer about shoulders and things like that. So because you, you pull, it's all the little muscles that you can, you can do things with. And um, so I had a personal trainer twice a week, never had one before, don't have one now, but it was absolutely brilliant. He was lovely. I used to run two or three times a week. I would row, I've got a rowing machine, um, and I would row three or four times a week. And by the end, I was doing at least once or twice a week, I was doing half marathon on the rower, 13 months, you know, on the on the rower. Yeah, I got reasonably, reasonably fit, I'd say, for me. Had you taken the boat out on the ocean before you got in it? Oh, yeah, we, we, we trained. So we went in December 21. We spent the period from March 2021 through to September 2021 quite regularly on the boat and our longest trip was from Salcombe to Falmouth and back which is about a hundred and something miles I think yeah uh, via the Eddystone lighthouse and that was uh, that was a fantastic trip I really enjoyed it must have been a bit longer than 100 miles it took us about four days must be 200 miles I think 200 miles yeah 200 miles four days so that's a proper it's a proper yeah. test yeah, it's a proper test. Yeah, and we and we we did you know two hours on, two hours off. We did Atlantic format, but I have to tell you, I mean, rowing around the coast of the UK is far far more difficult than rowing across the Atlantic because you've got rocks, boats, and tides. Whereas once you push off from Lagomera across the Atlantic, there's basically nothing. There might be the very odd ship around. We saw less than ten other boats of any description, including rowing boats, from when we left Lagomera to when we arrived in Antigua. And you've got the wind behind you as well. Well, you, the, the idea is that uh, going at that time of the year is that you go south a bit and then you pick up the trade winds, which are east-northeast. But unfortunately, the trade winds didn't happen this year. Oh, okay. The trade winds depend on something called the Azores High, which is an area of high pressure, as you can imagine, around the Azores. And that was totally disrupted by storms in the North Atlantic. So we did get some east-northeast winds. They didn't amount to trade winds. But we also had quite a lot of northwesterlies, which pushed us south and which, which gave us a beam on sea, if you know what I mean. So a sea hitting the side of the boat. So we spent a lot of the time being exocetted by waves coming from the side. Yeah. Fab, you know, when you told me you were going to do it, I thought you were mental. Um, I still think you're mental. But uh, it's just, it actually, it sounds more in personal endurance. It's just that, do I think I can be really, really, really friggin' uncomfortable for 53 days? Yeah, probably. Back myself to do that. Okay, I'll have a go then. I mean, there are lots of benefits, right? Like, there's not a lot to think about other than (laughs) getting on and looking at your chart plotter and figuring out how far you've got to go and um, chatting to your fellow crewmate and sunbathing and sleeping a lot and 
all that sort of stuff. So uh, there's lots of good stuff. Is your food packed in such a way that you just get up and open day 15 and then day 16 and day 17? So there's just like that when you're disoriented, there's just nothing to, you don't have to think about that. You just. Yeah, except that you, you then get the trouble with that is you then get your favorites, right? And so forget day 15, 16, 17, you get 20 bags of food out till you find something, <laughs> <laughs> you, find something you like. And um, yeah, we did find that the spaghetti carbonara was our, was our favorite. I wish we'd just taken that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have eaten it for 53 hours. As you're getting towards your destination, you're thinking, I hope we finish soon because I'm just can't be I can't bear any more of that food. Exactly. I know. To be honest, it gets better and better. So I started off absolutely hating it, and uh, and, and I think it's just a matter of what you get used to, and you think, God, delicious, you know. And uh, <laughs> by the time you get there, you're eating the chocolate puddings, the custard and apple creams, the whole bloody lot, you know. And uh, one of the problems I had was that I I didn't eat enough in the first few weeks and i got much much weaker you'd you'd have thought wouldn't you your common sense tells you that you get fitter and fitter as you go across it's absolutely the opposite and it's true of everyone you arrive as weak as a kitten probably because you just can't consume enough protein exactly i mean you're burning six seven thousand calories a day and uh you just cannot you cannot get it in but but it helps if you eat 4,000 rather than 2,000. And for a while, I was eating almost nothing. And that just got me to the stage. It, it happened when we, when we had to row together because we, we were in some currents. And uh, I rowed for about half an hour together with David. And I just said, David, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I'm completely knackered. And he said, you're not eating enough. So I just doubled up on everything and just ate more and more. And... Uh, I don't think it put any weight back on, but it made me stronger again. And, yeah. uh, and that was amazing. And, um, yeah, the night before we came into Antigua, we were we could see it appear over the horizon with the lights, you know, on the top of the hill and all the rest of it. Then we had a couple of birds land on the boat, which not of the feathered variety I used to have. <laughs> and um, one was flapping around and uh, actually landed on my head. Uh, and I, you know, it, it was amazing. And um, so after that, David called me Cliff, which was funny. <laughs> and then some some guy, it was quite rough out there, um, 20 miles away from Antigua, I suppose we were. And uh, suddenly this, this enormous powerboat appeared out of nowhere. With this guy saying, hey, guys, I've just come out. It's three o'clock in the morning, pitch black. I've just come out to welcome you to Antigua. And we said, well, that's fan, and he'd gone. <laughs> <laughs> Some funny things happen out there, I tell you. Oh. <laughs> but anyway, no, it was an amazing experience. Excellent. Long may it last. Uh, and the last time we were talking, you were at Smith & Williamson. Yes. And now you're not, so another big change. Yeah, so um, this row was always going to be a segue between kind of, you know, semi-serious working and having more fun doing stuff I wanted to do. And uh, so I spent from 2008 to 2019 as a partner at Smith & Williamson and then as a consultant until 2021. 2022, I'm sorry, April 22. And now I've stepped back and I've started Guy Rigby, the Entrepreneur's Advisor. 
and I'm working with founders of businesses, typically on, I mean, I guess I'm doing a, a version of what you do, but probably not as professionally. I'm doing it more. I'm doing it more in my own, you know, 50 years of experience mode. Yeah. What types of founders, have you got a particular niche? Uh, have I got a particular niche? I don't think I have, really. I'm helping therapy platform, an e-commerce retailer, a disaster recovery business, a translation business, that kind of stuff anyway. But there are, there are eight of them in total, including my five-year program for the charity with the road which is fully pro bono. And are they are they after your financial skills mostly or don't want to bore your listeners, but my my kind of role is that I I'm reasonably good at figuring out whether something's going to work or not. I've probably seen multiple ways of people attempting to do whatever it is they're trying to do and therefore have some idea about what is likely to work better than what isn't if you see what I mean. And yeah, because I'm a chartered accountant and I've been a finance director and everything, I, I do that kind of quasi-financial oversight role. I don't really want to be a finance director. That's not my game in life. But I am able to to give people reasonably sound financial advice. And I'm a good red flag man. I'm a good intermediary between them and their advisors. Because uh, I hate wasting money on professional advice where it's not required. And a lot of money gets wasted because... There is a translation problem between the companies and the advisors. Often the companies don't know what they need and the advisors go off and do something they don't. And so that's that's what I'm what I'm doing. And um I'm having great fun doing it. I mean it's brilliant. Is eight you're full? No, I'm not full. I mean I'm uh, uh, so at the moment four of them are paid roles. I haven't yet accepted a non-exec directorship. Two of them wanted me to be a non-exec, but I said no, I'd, I'd rather go advisory board if you want me to be a non-exec it's going to cost you much more money uh, <laughs> um but uh so i'm happy to advise you but i i like quite like the idea of being able to what, what's the word i can kind of barge into a company i don't mean that that sounds wrong i can go into a company and i can talk to them about stuff and then i can leave and it's more like a coaching thing you know it's mentoring it's coaching but hopefully i leave a lot of value on the table for them but when i leave i don't have to worry about it because it's not my problem well the non-exact it's always your problem that's not to say i won't accept a non-exact role and i guess if i do a non-exact they'll want me to be the audit committee chair or something and all that sort of stuff so but i i, I haven't found the right sort of fit yet for that one okay and what else are you doing with your time then so um well i'm uh, i'm rowing on the river at Marlow, and I've uh, I've got a 2023 Atlantic Challenge rower that I'm helping to train up on the river. I'm trying to keep fit uh, doing that. Uh, I'm doing a reasonable amount of exercise and all that sort of stuff. Frankly, uh, I get up a bit later sometimes than I used to, but I'm in London two days a week. I'm busy. I've also got five grandchildren, so we're off on the last couple of weekends we've been off you know, all over the place with, with them. They're all kind of growing up now. So um, uh, to be honest, it's not, um, I'm not having trouble filling my time. <laughs> if you look back over your career then, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, I mean, it, to be honest, I wish I'd done what I'm doing now a bit earlier. So there's always that fear, isn't there, of leaving something that's solid and secure and pays a nice lump of money into your bank account every month. 
and doing your own thing. And often when you do do your own thing, you think, God, why didn't I do this earlier? You know, confidence, I suppose. It's, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, but I, I, I love my time. Don't get me wrong. I love my time at Smith & Williamson. And I had a great career. I started their entrepreneurs division. That entrepreneurs division took on 600 clients during my tenure there, ranging from literally every kind of financial advice to, you know, growth advice to fundraising to selling, exiting, blah, 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 blah. We did it all. But you do get, you know, I've always suffered from a sort of 10-year itch, really. So probably by 2018, 19, which is after I'd been there 10 years, that's when I came up with the idea of the row. And I decided that this had to be the time that I changed things. And the row just postponed it, really. It meant that I could, because Smith & Williamson became very kindly my principal sponsor. So I was able to sort of con them into continuing to keep me on for a couple of years more, you know, <laughs> as a result of that. <laughs> Smith & Williamson's positioning around entrepreneurs, it's, it's unique in terms of the breadth of services? I think it is. I think that's exactly right. So Smith & Williamson, for whom I'm, I have a great love and will still act as an ambassador, is now not called Smith & Williamson. I think that's the first most important point. It merged with Tilney, the wealth management group 18 months ago, two years ago, maybe now. And they have just rebranded as Evelyn Partners. So Evil and Partners. E- Evil. Well, that's an interesting one, <laughs> isn't it? I, I didn't say it. I just they, they should have they should have said that to some people first before they did all of that and signed that signed that with Evelyn and Partners. E-V-E-L-Y-N. They apparently Smith & Williamson was founded in Evelyn Street in Glasgow, which is how they got to that. But I suspect uh, apart from that, I mean, it's a, it's a male name, it's a female name, it's got all sorts of attributes, I'm sure. But I'm sure that the fact that the .com and the .co.uk might have been available might have had something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Helps. Yeah, well, I don't know whether it was or not, or whether they had to go and find those, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, they were lovely people to work with. It's great fun. And and going back to your original point, yes, it's everything from a startup upwards in terms of accountancy, tax advice, financial services, corporate finance, M&A, you name it. It's also financial services on the investment side. And it, it manages, well, Evelyn Partners now manage over 50 billion in funding. So an entrepreneur, you know, the idea is from a financial perspective, an entrepreneur can go to Evelyn Partners, they can form their company there, they can be looked after by the small companies team for the first few years, then they can break out and be looked after by the kind of more senior audit side of the business. Uh, They can get their corporate finance advice, their international structuring advice, blah, 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 blah. They can raise money, carry on. They can then be sold. And uh, the founders' tax affairs tend to get a little bit more complex once businesses get sold because suddenly they've got a pile of money and they need advice on that. And then, of course, they can manage the money. So it's a, it's a, it's a soup to nuts, you know, cradle to grave type service. And, and they do it very well. How many sort of ideal customers come through that sort of that journey end to end, do you reckon? More and more, I think. But yes, I mean, you may not get quite as many literally the startups, you know, there are plenty of startups that work with Smith & Williamson. I mean, pure, like, back of a fag packet, start the company, you have to issue the shares, and, and on we go. 
But I think the vast majority of clients that they take on are already established. They might be only turning over two or three million a year or during, but, but but they're on they're on the journey and therefore and from there I think it works really well. Have you had time to read any business books recently? Do you know? Um, God, I wish you hadn't asked me that. <laughs> I should have checked before I asked you, shouldn't I? I should have checked at the beginning before we pressed record. The answer is I haven't. I've got about three here to read, but I just haven't. Well, what have you got to read? Oh, my God. Well, there's one uh, called um, Scale Up, Sweat Scale or something by a guy called Pablo Fatidis. Do you know him? No. Oh, I can't I can't leave my seat. Whatever. I, 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 yeah, I keep thinking. I'll tell you what I am reading at the moment. I'm reading um, a book by... Uh, Boris Johnson about Winston Churchill. Oh, I thought it was very good. It's an absolutely excellent book. Uh, have you have you seen that? I didn't want to like it because it was written by Boris Johnson, and then I found that uh, as once as long as I put that to one side, I know. I actually no, came away thinking I like Boris Johnson more than before after reading the book. It's so well written, and uh, and it's so engaging, and you find out some 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 of those wonderful quotes that Churchill made. I always love his drinking quotes, don't you? The ones like, you know, the, um, <laughs> the uh, uh, magnum of clarity is perfect for two gentlemen for lunch, especially if one of them isn't drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one during during uh, that I that I didn't, hadn't heard before was uh, prohibition in the states. Uh, one of the prohibitionists, as it were, in the states went up to Winston Churchill and says, "Drink is." makes you crazy and evil like a serpent. And Winston Churchill turns around and says, Christ, I've been looking for a drink like that all my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but it's so good. But actually, you've only got to read the first 10 pages to work out why Boris Johnson is Boris Johnson. I mean, he has modelled himself on Churchill. I'm not saying that he's done a great job, (laughs) but... uh, but he's definitely modelled himself on, on, on Churchill. Very good. And maybe one last thing on the on the rowing. Mm. When you look back on it now, is there something that is there something about the rowing you wish you'd known that you now know? You know, that, uh, the, what, what is this wisdom that you're passing on to your man on the river? I think the interesting thing, Don, it's, 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 it's a whole collection of stuff. When you start on the journey that I started on with the row, it was my idea. I had no idea where you bought a boat, how the equipment on the boat was sourced, what what the sort of things that we're going to need caring for and repairing, and how you survived on a boat, how a water maker works, how you look after your batteries, your solar panels, all that sort of stuff. It's just one massive learning process. And um, what I find now when I'm with future rowers is is they say something i say no no, no it won't be like that it won't be like that you know it'll be like this i hope i'm not annoying them i'm sure i'm not actually but there are certain things that you you've just got to get nailed and um things like if it's very rough and very bad weather you have to learn how to put your parachute anchor out and we never deployed it once in anger on the race because we just kept rowing and we never got that kind of weather but but we knew that we could do it in two and a half minutes if we needed to 
and you need to know that sort of stuff. We weren't tested. We didn't capsize. I mean, that that's just worth saying, actually. We were terrified of being seasick, right? We were never seasick. We were terrified of capsizing. I say terrified. We knew how to deal with it. But the idea of being thrown in the Atlantic upside down, an upside down boat in the middle of the night is not pleasant. So did you wear life jackets all the time? Never wore a life jacket. You are always connected. Attached ah, okay, you're tethered. To the boat. You've got a, you've got a, you know, a, a harness. So it's just a whole experience of it that is amazing. I mean, I have one fabulous moment. We had two freak waves on the way across. The first one, I was in the cabin asleep when we were hit from the side. And 30, 40 foot wave suddenly hits you from a calm sea. It's pretty unusual. Uh, <laughs> Uh, both, both like, so, so there's nothing to see, and then something yeah. the size of a house just comes and, comes and hits, hits, you, hits yeah. you side on or falls over yeah, the top of yeah. you. Yeah, so David, David got that one. I was in the cabin. It broke the rollock, snapped the casing on the around the oar, uh, threw him off his seat into the loo bucket, bruised his ribs and all that sort of stuff. And he was pretty shaken up by it because it was just came from nowhere. And then we had to sort of fix or fix the rollock, you know, get in while well, we had a spare that we managed to find and all that sort of stuff. Uh, mine was much more pleasurable. Mine was also in the middle of the night, and it was I was just bowling along with nice little waves coming behind me, probably five, ten feet waves, just, you know, going along like this. And um, suddenly there was an explosion on the back of the boat, and tons and tons of water went past me here and over my head, dropping one tiny little bucketful in the boat. And I watched, the thing we used to watch at the back of the boat was this knotometer, as it were, you know, tell you how fast you're going. And I saw that go from two and a half knots to nine and a half knots. And what we'd done is we'd gone straight through a wave. We didn't go over it, we went straight through it. And I expected to see everything on the back deck gone, you know, all our radio aerials and flagpole and all that sort of stuff. It was all still there to my utter amazement. And all I can remember doing is howling with hysterical laughter. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what, anyone can do it. It's the most amazing experience. And if you do have any listeners who think they've, they've got the desire and wherewithal because you've got to be able to raise some money and, and as well as raise some money for the charity, then I am uh, looking for rows for 24, 25, 26, and 27. Yeah, I'm willing to take, and take a bit of time off to get yourself there. Yeah. <laughs> you've got yeah. to, you, you know, you, you've got to be able to take some time off that's not the family holiday because you, it's, what is it, 50, 56 days and... Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's longer than that. It's two weeks before the race. It's your race crossing time. And in a pairs boat, that's likely to be around 45 to 55 days up to 60 days, then you need, you cannot get off that boat and get on a plane and go back to work. That's not, doesn't work like that. You are basically a skeleton when you get off the boat <laughs> and you just need a week or two to, to pull yourself back together again. So, so you're, you're talking about, you know, three months, really. That's for the race. That's for the race. And then you've got to do all the preparation beforehand. But, you know, it's nothing worthwhile in life is easy, right? And it's uh, it's it's uh, it's just a fantastic thing to do. Brilliant. Well, look, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. It's been as ever a pleasure to talk to you. I was I wanted to get you on 
we tried to get we tried to get this arranged a couple of times but work's got in the way for both of us so guy thank you very much indeed for coming on and chatting to me about it loved it thank you Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.